You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Ezekiel chapter 47, verses 1 through 12. When I conclude the reading, I will declare to you that this is the word of the Lord, and our corporate response is thanks be to God. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate, and led me around to the outside of the, to the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. Going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits, And then he led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. Again, he measured a thousand, and led me through the water, and it was knee deep. Again, he measured a thousand, and led me through the water, and it was waist deep. Again, he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be very many fish. For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh, so everything will live where the river goes." Fishermen will stand beside the sea. From Ingedi to Ingleam, it will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They are, are to be left for salt. And on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month, because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food, and their leaves for healing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our New Testament reading and scripture text this morning, I'm sorry, our sermon text this morning is from 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Verses 14 to 17. But thanks be to God who is in Christ always, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To a fragrance, to one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray one more time and ask for God's help. Father, you call us. You forgive us. You hear us. You speak to us. You feed us, and you send us. God, I pray that you would teach us how these movements, these commands, these instructions are gracious and good. That you'd help us by your spirit to know that they 
It should not be empty, but be marked by power. And God, that you would reframe and help us to re-understand every single facet of our lives through the lens of the fact that we are sent out into this world to bear witness to Christ, to follow Christ, to smell like Christ. God, may these things, these wonderful, weighty, terrible things be glorious to us. In your name we pray, amen. I want to begin by noting that over the course of the last several decades, the the whole notion and understanding of what a Christian's mission is um, has just run into trouble and a great deal of confusion. Um, For for many, many decades, for many, many years particularly, um, the the mission of the church was seen primarily in terms of um, winning converts, um, merely getting people to sign a card, getting people to come forward during a crusade, um, getting people to um, get into the waters of baptism. Um, If we could do that, that was the win. That that was the instructions that Jesus gave us. Um, That's the goal. That's all that the church should be about. On the other hand, like other streams within the church kind of expanded the mission of the church to something so broad and, and, and frankly so either completely aligned with either the, the platform of the Democratic Party or the platform of the Republican Party um, that it became difficult to distinguish between um, the, the mission of those political parties and what the church was actually to be about. On the one hand, the kind of uh, vision of the narrowing of the mission of the church and the narrowing of the mission of Christians um, to mere um, convert-oriented evangelism actually created an enormous burden on Christians seeking to live faithful lives in the world. If my neighbor's not saved, if my friend's not saved, if my coworker's not saved, if my kids aren't saved, whatever the thing might be, um, if I'm not producing active and daily converts to Christianity, I'm failing as a disciple of Jesus, I'm not doing the thing that God has designed me and wired me, in fact, saved me to do. That's a horrible burden to bear. On the other, hi- on the other hand, that there was a kind of absolute secularization of what God has called us to do, um, such that the mission of God, the purpose of God, who God is and what we're supposed to do as his people in the world, um, uh, basically kind of got so degraded to be aligned merely with the right or the, the political right or the political left or the social right or the social left, that it was hard to understand why we needed God in any of it anyway. I believe that God actually in the way that he has framed Christian worship and ended Christian worship um, with uh, a doxology and a benediction of things that we end with week in and week out are instructive to us in understanding the nature of Christian mission, the nature of the mission of the church and what it means to be God's people in the earth. I mean, the reality is, is that both of the ditches I've described have got something right. God does send us out into the world um, uh, to to make the dead come alive. That that through our lives, through our witness to the supremacy of Jesus and the goodness of Jesus, through practicing hospitality, through loving our neighbors well, and through being faithful to hold fast to the testimony of who Jesus is, uh, the promise is, the, the, the goal is that those who are dead in their sins, those who don't know Christ, 
would know him. They would be made alive. On the other hand, the other ditch has some things right too. The mission of God is bigger than mere religious conversion. He actually intends to fill this world, to transform every single part of it, from our vocations to our families to governments, to see all of it transformed and aligned with his purposes, his goodness, his holiness, his righteousness on the earth. And so we can't reduce the mission of God and the mission of the church to mere kind of um, spiritual, somehow kind of this like spiritual silo that stays away from and doesn't touch any other part of our lives. And on the other hand, we shouldn't, um, we shouldn't divorce um, the, the God-centered, Christ-centered authority that God has given to the church and called the church to bear testimony to in the world. We shouldn't divorce that from other good things that we might be doing in the world, either through our work or in politics or with our families. And so I want to let um, the scriptures, particularly here, in Second Corinthians four, or, uh, sorry, Second Corinthians two, um, with some references to Ezekiel forty-seven and how all of these kind of shape and determine what we do here on a Sunday, what our worship looks like, particularly how our worship gatherings end, to give shape to and to define what it is. What is the mission that we're on? Is it somehow divorced from every other part of our life, or is it embedded in it? And, and how should we conduct it and what we should we expect from it? My prayer is um, that you'll see that every single week you are being commissioned. You're being sent. But, but you're being sent to, to pick up Cheerios. You're being sent to do your job with integrity. You are being sent to speak I'm sent to speak of Jesus. You are being sent to seek to obey Jesus. But the mission of God encompasses every single facet of our lives, including our testimony to the reign of Jesus and the work that he's done on the cross. But also includes being a good dad. It also includes being a decent neighbor. It also includes the work that you've been given by God to do, either in the home or in the workplace or in school, students, all of these things are components of what God sends us out into the world to do, and to do with a particular kind of faithfulness to him. So, so let's, let's look again, kind of where we've come from, and kind of resituate ourselves on the, uh, in, in the kind of geography of the world, which we've seen as the geography of worship. You'll remember going back all the way to the very first week of this series. We talked about how um, God um, in Genesis 2 gives us a map of, of not just kind of a geography of the initial creation, but he actually gives us a geography of our lives, a geography of what it means to be called to the human vocation. What does it mean to be image bearers of God in the world? And you'll remember that you had um, a three-storied world or a three-zoned kind of um, three universe. Um, beginning with the, the center of all of life was the garden. Um, the garden, this, um, this theme of the garden is repeated for us throughout the scriptures as it grows and develops and matures throughout history. Becoming um, initially a, a, t- a tabernacle um, under Moses and, and in the wilderness. Um, but then under the reign of Solomon and through kind of David's nudging, it, it goes from being a tabernacle to a temple 
And then finally, with the coming of Jesus, the temple is then replaced um, by churches that are called to fill the earth. Um, and at the center of all of reality was this, um, this call to come together, to gather in the presence of God as the people of God, um, to be instructed by him, to commune and to fellowship with him, um, and to bring offerings to him. Um, and then around, surrounding that garden, or that tabernacle, or that temple, or that church was land. Um, land um, in, in the garden, you had the garden, and then you had the land, you had the Garden of Eden, you had the land of Eden. Um, you had the temple of Jerusalem, and then you had the city of Jerusalem and the land of Israel. And these were the places where the people of God, after leaving the temple, after leaving the garden, um, after leaving the church, are sent into the world, um, bearing the presence of God, being marked by the instructions of God and the spirit of God and the life of God that they encountered in the temple, they encountered in the garden, that they're intended to encounter in the church, are then sent into the world to, to work the ground, to, to cause um, the, uh, the, the, the resources, the world that God has made, to cause it to bear fruit, fruit that glorifies God and fruit that, that blesses and cares for people. That they're also sent into that land as... as one of the best texts in the whole Bible. As God gives Adam and Eve the instruction that they're to be fruitful and to multiply and fill the earth. And so we have two things right from the beginning that, that Adam and Eve are instructed to do when they're sent from the garden. But one, that they're to take the ground to work it and to keep it. They're to be gardeners. They're to be farmers. They're to be city builders. They're to be those that take the world that God has made and cause it to be more fruitful. Um, and they're called to go and build families. Families of, of children that love God, that worship Him, that know Him, that follow Him, and are also trained to work hard in the world to cause it, again, to bear fruit that honors God and blesses people. And so, at the center, we have the worship of God's people then sent into the land, called to multiply, to be fruitful, to cause that land to flourish. Now, when we consider our own task, our own mission, we find ourselves here on a Sunday morning in the garden, in the tabernacle, in the temple, gathered in the presence of God, and surrounded by a city that doesn't know him, that for the most part doesn't love him, that doesn't gather for the most part, in other churches throughout the city, to worship him. Rather, we find ourselves in a minority. Um, and yet, we end each week by God sending us out into this particular city, into these particular neighborhoods, to do the same work that he called Adam and Eve to, to bear witness to his authority and his reign and his goodness, to obey him, to be fruitful and to multiply, to use the gifts that God's given us to cause them to bear more fruit, fruit that would glorify God, and fruit that would honor and care for people. So how do we do that? What does it look like? And what are the implications of it? As we seek to do that in a pagan city. So I want to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 14 to 17, and allow this to kind of shape and instruct what it means to be the people of God. And the very, very first thing I want you to look at and to see is the very first 
phrase in verse 14. But thanks be to God. Every Sunday when we gather, we end, before I send you, with a benediction. We end by singing the doxology. And we tell you to raise your hands. One of my favorite things to do is to look up and to see kids, particularly. I mean, some of you adults are cute when you do it too. But really, um, it's the kids raising their hands. I mean, little row, Kensington. Um, these kids with their hands raised, belting out the doxology as loud as they can. The doxology is simply a song of thanksgiving. And we sing it at the end of our service on purpose. But one, that we want to recognize and acknowledge the gifts of God that he's given us as we've gathered in this space. I mean, think of the things that he gives us here. Don't take it for granted. And, and trust me, I, I'm not just preaching to you guys. Like I'm, I'm a pastor, and pastors, it's very, very easy for me to go, man, there was a typo here. Man, I really stunk when I tried to lead them in singing Psalm 122. It was embarrassing. Man, why is that person running up and down the aisles? Like, whatever the thing is, to, to, to not acknowledge the gifts of God as we gather on a Sunday. But, but think about this for a second. God personally calls you, invites you, commands you to come, to be with him. Have you stopped to consider that this morning? This, this morning. And not generally, but, but this morning, you're sitting in this room because the God of the universe, the God who spoke everything into being, personally calls you by name to gather in this room in his presence. He wants to be with you. Do you know how astounding that is? You don't, I can tell, except for Chris. I'll say that, I don't know. I don't know if that's true. But God invited you here. Do you remember you were in like junior high and you wanted to get invited to the cool party? And you didn't? Maybe I didn't. Like, God. Like, God. God. Invited you here. Called you here. Said to you, Isaiah, Amy, come be with me this morning. Nathan, I want you to come and play your guitar before me today. Do you get it? And then when you got here, like you blew it this week. Maybe you had harsh, cruel words spoken to a coworker or to a spouse, husband or a wife. Maybe you lied. Maybe you chased after your own lusts. And you gathered in this room and the, the most holy, pure, righteous, good one in all of the universe looks at you. And you confess your sins to him. And he looks at you and he says, I forgive you because of the work of Jesus.
And he always does it. Like, I don't know if he showed up this week and thought, I don't know, is this going to be the week that he just says, this is stupid, like, stop. But it wasn't. Do you remember? We were just here. We got on our feet, we got on our knees, confessed our sins to God. And God, so unlike us, again, looks at you. Says, I forgive you. That's amazing to me. I mean, if one of my kids does the same thing wrong, like 10 times in a row, which is nothing compared to how many times in a row I've done the same thing wrong. Do you know how hard it is to not like take a little dig? Like go like, well, we'll see. But God doesn't do that. He just says, I forgive you. And then, he he creates space for you to to tell him what you need. Like to bring your petitions into his presence. To pray for a sick child. To pray for a new job. To pray for the victory of his name over evil everywhere. To to pray, to pray, to pray. He, He invites you to ask him for stuff. Like, the one who's capable of doing everything. That happened this morning. And some of you just blew through it. Like, oh man, this is boring. He just keeps talking, the bald guy. But it was God who invited us to bring our petitions to him. And then he opens up a book and speaks to us about who he is and what he's like and what he wants for us in the world. He could have just left us in the dark to kind of like figure it out on our own, but he doesn't. He speaks. He reveals himself to us through the scriptures. And in just a minute, trust me, Lord willing, it's going to happen unless, I don't know, something bad structurally happens to the building, like right here. We're going to come to this table and God's going to provide a meal for us with bread and wine not grape juice it could have been cheap but he gives us wine wine he blesses wine like have you considered all of the unbelievable gifts that God gives us every single Sunday that then spill over into every other part of our life. This God meets us and has met us this morning and blesses us. And so every single week, we end with a doxology. Not just because we want to see the cute kids raise their hands, but because we want to give thanks to acknowledge the gifts and the kindnesses of God every single time we come together in this room. And this is the fundamental mark of the people of God sent into the world. We are a grateful people. Not just for what happens here, but because what happens here helps us to see, to acknowledge, to recognize all of life is a gift. Like tomorrow morning, 
I'll get up. My kids are teenagers now, so they don't run in and dive on the bed like they used to. Some of you, by the way, are still in that phase, and it feels miserable at 5.30. Or 6, or really 7. But like, please rejoice how fun that is. But instead, I'll get up in the morning, and Molly will likely have made coffee, or will be making coffee. She'll make some sort of witty remark to me first thing in the morning. Gift! Coffee, gift! Lunch, gift! Whoever I talk to between coffee and lunch, gift! Like God just gives us so many gifts that we just blow past or we see as a burden or we see as a problem. And yet God in his kindness meets us and blesses us and cares for us over and over and over and over again. And all of it drenched in the blood of Jesus which forgives us and purchased every single one of those good gifts, none of which we deserve. Oh, we are sent here singing a song of thanksgiving because we are to be a people who are always singing the song of thanksgiving. When trials come, oh, we ask for God's help and we give thanks. When good times come, we bless God and we give thanks. This is to mark the people of God, but thanks be to God. And then after this phrase, Paul uses two different images to instruct us on what it should be like and what we should expect as we're sent from this place faithfully bearing witness to the reign of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the life of Jesus. Here's the two metaphors. First one. He leads us, look at it, verse 14, leads us in triumphal procession. And then the second metaphor, he uses two different words to the second metaphor. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Smell. For we are the aroma, again the smell, the smoke can be smelled of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To want a fragrance, again, smell, from death to death and to the other, a fragrance, smell, from life to life. So two metaphors, triumphal procession, second one, aroma, smell, fragrance, Let's take the first one, triumphal procession. This is taken directly from Roman culture in the first century. General conquers an army out in the field, blows them up, destroys them. I guess you don't blow things up when you're a Roman soldier. You spear all the bad people or the people that you're your enemies. You speared them all. You won the victory. The other general, the other king, the other governor, whoever it was, surrenders. And then 
triumphant governor, the triumphant victor, marches into the conquered city in a triumphal procession. It's like a giant party. And so you march into that city. Let's say you're somebody who dwells in that city. Let's say you looked around at the city prior to this general conquering your city. You looked around at the city and thought, this city's terrible. It's got really bad sewage. And the market's broken. People are using bad weights to sell me my chicken. And uh, murderers run rampant in the streets. I hate it here. This is terrible. Conquering victor coming into your city. Is that good or is that bad? Well, it depends. But if it's a good conqueror, good. Cheaper chicken, hopefully. Less murders. And hopefully we can clean up the sewage. This is good news. Better life for me and my family. This is wonderful. But let's say you lived in that city and you liked cheating people and your chickens that you sold them. Or you liked the open sewage. You thought it smelled great. Or you liked being a kind of bandit murderer. Kind of like your little side job. This conquering, imp- this conquering general coming into your city, is this good or bad? Again, it depends, but probably bad. You liked how things were. You liked all the things. You took advantage of all the things. Um, and so, the image that, that Paul takes is Christ has won. Here's news to everyone. Christ has conquered Denver already. He's not trying to figure out how to do so. He's not like lining up some strategies, like take over. He already took over. It's his. Jesus says all authority in heaven and on earth, all the earth, including Denver, is mine. It's his. In other words, he reigns here now. It's his. And so what is he doing for these last 2,000 years in a place like Denver, at least since Denver was founded in the year? Well, He's been marching in triumphal procession through the city. And he's been leading a people to march in triumphal procession through the city. In other words, we're to be a people marked by gratitude that Jesus has won, that Jesus has given gifts, that Jesus has forgiven our sins, that Jesus reigns over all things, grateful that this city is his, and we are to be marked as a people, marked by that gratitude and sent into the city Um, And and the the posture is a people who are marching in a city that belongs to Jesus. So some of you look at the city and you go, how are we going to win this city for Jesus? Already done. It's won. It's his. So we are to be a people who live in the midst of this city, knowing that Christ reigns over it. Knowing that his authority, his authority, his rules, his ways of describing the world should be and are ultimately normative for how life is to be lived under his reign. They're not exceptional. 
They don't belong merely in kind of some religious category over here, but no, he reigns now, and his word determines reality. And you can either live aligned with that reality, aligned with that reign, or or in rebellion against it. So we're to be a people whose lives are marked by alignment to the fact that Christ reigns. We are a conquered people. And so the question is, is that good news to you? Or is that bad news to you? Say it one more time. It's really important. We are a conquered people. Is that cause for celebration for you? Or is that cause for mourning, grief, and guerrilla rebellion? Second metaphor. Um, This metaphor is taken directly from one of the things we talked about last week, which is the burnt offering, or the offering of ascent. Um, the, the way that the Old Testament would describe it is the burnt offering um, would be a pleasing smell in the nostrils of God. Um, that that it, was, uh, it, it was not just the means by which the people of God ascended into the presence of the Father um, through the smoke. Um, it was also the, um, a, a thing that pleased God, that they were in, in his presence, that, the, um, that their aroma was a pleasing aroma to them. And so here's what worship is supposed to do. It's supposed to burn you. It's supposed to burn you such that you ascend into the presence of the Father and you smell like that burnt offering in every facet of your life all week long. But but notice the direction. It is, we are the aroma of Christ to God among. So the, the orientation of our lives, the orientation of our worship the orientation of our burning is to God. We want to smell like Christ to God. We want our lives to be sacrificed to God. We want every part of our life to be on the altar, belonging to God, so that your kids belong to God, your marriage belongs to God, your job belongs to God. All of your relationships belong to God, um, are meant to be something that pleases God, um, that smells like Christ to God, and it's to happen in front of a world that's smelling the same thing. So the two metaphors, we march behind our conquering King Christ, celebrating his reign, giving thanks for his reign. All of our lives coming into line with his reign such that we obey his word. We love his word. We trust his word. And we celebrate his work for us on the cross and his resurrection. And second, we gather as living sacrifices here every Sunday. Burnt offerings whose whole lives are to reek of Jesus. To smell like a people who have been in the presence of God. A couple of implications and we're done. Paul makes it explicit here. He says in verse 16, 
to one a fragrance from death to death, to other, the other a fragrance from life to life. Your life, when lived in obedience to God, with a love for God, um, and done publicly, done unashamedly, done willing um, to bear witness to the, the work of Jesus and the reign of Jesus over all things, it should produce an odor. And that odor for some will smell like life. It'll be good and glorious and they'll love it. It will be life to them, but to others, it will reek of death. I don't know how many of you have smelled death. But it's, it's not like a neutral smell. Like, don't want to get into a descriptive metaphor here. But like, it, it makes you want to vomit. Like you want to get away from the smell as quickly as you can. You want to cover your face. You, you usually curse. Cover your face and run out of the room. I mean, maybe you don't usually curse. I don't, but um, I was sure that some of you did. Like, it's an awful smell. So what does this mean? This means you should expect, you should expect visceral, disgusted reactions to faithfulness to Jesus. And, and so much of Christian mission, particularly over the last 15 years, has been infected with this idea that if you're being faithful to Jesus, if you're doing it right, if you're loving your neighbors rightly, everybody will love it. They'll be happy. You'll be winsome. The whole Bible says otherwise. To some, it will be the aroma of life itself. It will smell like spring, the good parts of spring. Not the, when the smell from the western center drifts over the city. But, but the, the, the good part, the flowers and the life and the, the beauty, it will smell like life to some. And they will come and there will be a glorious opportunity to, to share, to speak, to declare, to invite, that they might know the, the the reason for your hope, but to others, they will hate it. And they will hate it because Christ bids us to come and die in order to be made alive in him. To put to death your sin, to put to death your idolatry, to put to death your independence, to put to death everything that resists the authority and the reign and the goodness of God and his specific instructions for how you're to live your life and what you're to do. Um, We resist all of that. And so God comes and he bids us come and die that you might be made alive. And so some see lives that reflect that. But all they smell is death. All they smell is condemnation. And they hate it. They will hate your smell. Not because you forgot to shower. But to others, oh, they'll smell it and it will be the life they long for. Because God has put that longing in them. 
and you will speak of Jesus. The call to come to him and to die and be made alive. To turn away from your sins and be forgiven. The promise of new life in the spirit. And so go about your life as a burnt offering. Go about your life as one marching in the glorious procession of our reigning King Jesus. Gather with the saints week in and week out. Sing in thanksgiving to God week in and week out. And then be sent out those doors into the rest of your week. Smelling like Jesus. Following Jesus. Recognizing that all of your life belongs to Jesus. Knowing. Knowing. That you raising kids and picking up Cheerios. And and dealing with all of the emotional just mess that, ha- that happens throughout the whole process of raising um, teenagers for some of you, and, and, and the, the, the glory of what it means to just diligently stop whatever it is you're doing and in- engage in that conversation again with the seven-year-old, um, to, to, to um, again, have to patiently um, and diligently say, no, this is date night, and it matters, and we're going to have a date together. That, that none of those things are superfluous to the mission of God, that God sends you out to do all of those things under the reign of Jesus. Know that when you go to work on Monday and you're, uh, maybe you're beating a hammer or hanging a drywall, um, that this is not superfluous to the mission of God and the kingdom of God. It is the work you're called to do in the midst of the land. Or maybe you're designing bridges and power lines. Or maybe you're making coffee. Or maybe you're counting stuff and doing accounting or helping people invest their resources. Um, or taking pictures or dancing. But whatever it is that you're called to do in this world, to take the the, the the raw materials that God has put into this world to see them built up such that they honor God and they bless people. These are not superfluous. You are sent here to be a grateful people, submitted to the reign of Jesus, overwhelmed with joy at the reign of Jesus and to do your work faithfully and joyfully and gratefully. Or maybe you're a student. You've got to go to school tomorrow. Maybe you're going to go to a class on Tuesday, say an American Lit class, where you might have a quiz. Oh, faithfully read those books and rejoice in the work and the task that God has given you to do. Bless his name and bear witness to his reign forever. Ezekiel 47 is a picture of the, of the, the flourishing of the church in the world. And what's fascinating is it is a river that gets deeper the further out from its source it gets. In other words, it doesn't dwindle, it doesn't get dry slowly, but actually it gets deeper and deeper and deeper the further out it goes, um, the further out into history it goes. It begins to transform everything around it such that what was dead begins to produce life um, and, and what surrounds it begins to be filled with health and vitality and life. This is what the church is to be. And to some it will smell like death but we bring life let's pray so father we come now to this table reminded the strength in which we do these things in which we parent in which we pursue healthy God honoring marriages in which we work at banks or in investment firms, 
or coffee shops or in construction or in sales. The, the strength in which we are called to do these things is the strength that you provide as you nourish us, as you unite us to Jesus, as we follow him into all of these places, bearing witness to his reign with our words with lives seeking to obey him. And so God, I pray, pray that you would bless all of these brothers and sisters and that you would nourish them now with bread and wine. In your name we pray, amen.